So, welcome to the Gaily. This is the show where only same-sex marriage is legal. I'm your host, Yassine Maschot, and today's topic is gayness. Is that is that a good way to call it? The gays. The gays. Yes. Um, I'm not gay myself, but I I did download Grinder last week and have been researching uh, the topic. Uh, but I am how in depth. Are we getting out a, a yardstick or something? Um, but I am joined by three uh, veterans uh, of three veteran gays, right? Is that how you would call yourselves? Uh, I am a veteran and gay, but I don't know that I would call myself a veteran <laughs> gay. Hello, Tracing Woodgrains. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, we, we try to do some fact checking and, and I can confirm that tracing Woodgreens is indeed gay. Uh, I DJed his wedding and there were two men at the altar. So that checks out. Uh, and we have uh, Sultan, Sultan of swing. Hello. Hello. You're also gay. That's correct. And you're gay married as well. Yeah. If I'm ever confused about being gay, I usually ask my husband and he usually remembers <laughs> and uh welcome for the first time shakes also known as shakes how's it going yeah um today's topic is going to be i don't even know how to summarize it <laughs> what's a good place to start what's with the gays anyway yeah, what's, what's with the gays anyway like what what is up with you people I'll start with the, I think like perhaps one of the first things that caught my attention. I think it was uh, in a discussion with you, Shakes, when uh, we were talking about how straight men approach sex and status whenever they try to sleep with a woman. And it's, uh, at least in, implicitly, there's a whole dance around it. But uh, between the lines, the purpose of pursuing sex is to raise one's status as a hetero male. Did that like match up with your impression of the straights? I think that's a fair thing to say for most people in a lot of cases. Yeah. And you said something um, that I found very interesting about how that's different when you're in the gay community. Uh, can you um, explain like the main, I guess, the most obvious uh, uh, discrepancy between how straight men approach sex and how gay men approach sex? Well, I, I guess there's a couple that come to mind and Trace and Sultan are free to disagree with me. I, I find as a single man going out, dating, hooking up, that it's just assumed that everybody is having sex. And so even if you're not, you're in this background culture where everybody is having sex with everybody else. And there's not really any status to be gained from it. There's not status in necessarily saying that you're having sex because I'm having sex too. And the status comes more from the kinds of roles that people play when they are having sex or the character you're playing while you're you're out and about. And so just a just a quick interjection. It might be worth pointing out, and I think most people know this, but gay men have way, way more sex than than straight men. Uh, at least on average, right? On average. On average. Yeah, the the hookup culture with with gay men is the the threshold. The I guess like the the bar. <laughs> What's the word I'm looking for? There's such a low threshold to hook up uh, when when you're a gay man. It's super easy. People are more down to do so. Is that a fair assessment? 
Yeah, although I think that something that's sometimes missed is that a lot of this is sex with multiple partners. So if you're having sex with, say, 10 guys in a month, that really sounds like a lot of sex. But if you're a straight guy in a committed relationship with one woman, maybe you hit that really easily. Okay. And so um, sex with more partners isn't necessarily more sex, although it's usually more sex also. Just slightly different. I, I, I don't think sex and status are necessarily as correlated with gays. And I think that because it, it's assumed you're all having sex, there's this sort of tension where you go to hook up where most guys want a relationship, but they don't necessarily want a relationship with you or they don't know that, right? And so everybody wants to have sex to try it on before you buy it, try it before you buy it. But uh, nobody wants to make a commitment and nobody wants to commit to committing to yes or no, because that would that would potentially say things that most people would leave unsaid. So if that's vague, I'll just say really quickly that it, you, you, you generally assume that anybody you're hooking up with is hooking up with other guys. You don't want to ask about that, though, because you don't want to say out loud, oh, yes, we are both doing this casually and having sex with other guys, because that removes the potential for, well, if we like each other, or those kinds of things. So it's kind of like a plausible deniability thing? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's a simplification, because that doesn't work for everybody. There really are some guys who will just filter out immediately, hey, I'm looking for a serious relationship. Hey, I'm only looking for casual. But uh, in my experience, even guys who will say stuff like that are a lot more open and loose with what they're looking for, because that's just the culture that we're all swimming in in the water we're drinking. But we do have, I mean, right now we have Sultan and Trace, who are both gay married. Uh, how either one of you, do you want to chime in on how your experience was different? vis-a-vis -vis the, the hookup culture and gay community? I can't really comment on what hookup culture is like because I've never actually been a part of it. Um, this may, I guess, set me apart from other gay men um, on average, again. But um, I've never really been interested in intimacy outside of the committed relationship and was wary of like wading into that sea for a lot of the reasons that Shakes described is that there's an expectation that if you, well, if you just uh, go out and connect with people on like apps or other venues that like used to be how gay men hooked up like clubs that um, the person you're seeing was probably going to be hooking up with other people on the side. And also the fact that, um, also, as Shakes alluded to, the scarce resource uh, among gay men isn't really sex so much as commitment, which I can mm -hmm. maybe analogize to um, the way it is for straight women in that um, it's not difficult on average for women to find willing sexual partners. It's just a question of whether they're the kind of partners that they'd have any interest in or whether they're the kind of partners that they'd uh, actually want to build a life together with mm -hmm. and sultan you got married pretty early on right yep i got married at um 22 which was well about three days shy of my 23rd birthday um actual timing of it was 
it's a bit much to get into because it was um, like my husband and I are of different citizenships and there were legal advantages to getting married. We've been in a uh, committed relationship for about two and a half years before I actually proposed. Mm. Um, but it was, it was a bit of a strange timing because we went two and a half years, then a month-long engagement, and then we got married. Because by the time we had actually um, settled on that as being a course that we wanted to take... It was just a matter of, okay, what do we need to do to get married with, like, the minimum amount of ceremony attached? Okay, let's do that. Cool. And I'm sure that, yeah, I'm sure that maybe sets me apart from, I guess, probably not just the vast majority of gay men, but just the vast majority of people. But, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of different courses for a lot of different people, and I would say that this is the one that was right for me. Nice. And uh, Trace? Yeah, I think I'll amend uh, Shakes's everyone is having sex to everyone could be having sex in gay culture. Like, there is there is no real barrier to it. Um, Including condoms. <laughs> uh, so, so one hears, so one hears. Um, we'll talk but, that. <laughs> what was that, Shakes? We'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but what I'll emphasize is that in my own experience, you... I guess you get back a lot of the same energy you give off um, is the impression I got in that when I was dating, I was primarily looking for relationships and primarily found people who I was able to go on, you know, three, four dates with um, without uh, getting past a level of intimacy that I was comfortable with at that point. Uh, then at some point, you know, I decided I should figure out whether I was uh, actually interested in guys. So I went and first date with some random guy. He starts showing me the porn he draws and everything. And I'm like, all right, you know, you seem uh, flexible with this stuff. Sure, why not? Hooked up once. I was like, yeah, okay, good enough. And got into a serious committed relationship after that and just went from there. It's it's very low friction. And, and that's that's one of the things that makes status, I think, different among gay men than straight men is not just the low friction of sex but the egalitarian nature of it all where both people have the opportunity to pursue equally if they feel like it uh both people uh have similar expectations similar obligations uh similar implicit roles and obviously like people people can choose different roles within it all but there's just a lot there's no dynamic where, like, uh, in straight relationships, you know, the men are pursuing primarily and the women are sorting through a giant mass of uh, guys who want to have sex with them. Uh, for gay dudes, you both are sorting through a giant mass of guys you could pursue or could have sex with or could not bother. It's just very a very different dynamic. Yeah, so to simplify matters a great deal, um, the way that you, that you all describe it, because sex is so abundant within the game community, it kind of loses its appeal as a status signifier uh, because it's oversupplied in a sense. Is that is that fair? I think yeah. so. Yes. Although, okay. obviously, it doesn't lose other sorts of appeal. <laughs> well, I want to I ask, uh, I guess, more about that because for me, when I... I'm, 
I'm a straight male. And whenever I think about sex, it, it, it's really difficult to get out of the framing that I implicitly operate on, you know, basically 24 seven in that it's, I can't really, yes, like sex is physically pleasurable on its own, but there's also this uh, mental aspect to it uh, that I can't uh, separate. And for me, at least for me, I don't know how typical it is, but so much about sex is just this validation uh, from a high status woman, uh, an attractive woman, letting me do something to her. It feels like I'm awarded with like a gold medal. It's like, yes, I pick you like more than any other, uh, other men. And that's why I, I find, I guess, uh, that I think that's why there's so much, I guess, toxic co- co- competitiveness among straight men whenever they're pursuing like the same woman or whenever they're jockeying for position or hierarchy, because it's all about, it's a, it comes across as a, a zero sum game. Now, how, what do you impart is the main difference uh when it comes to the, that that the dynamic that i described when it comes to gay men well i i think that dynamic is present it doesn't comprise all sex but there is a lot of sex that you have which is wow this guy's really hot i can't believe i'm doing this right now but i i would say that with gay that's always men, the best sex i i, I love well, when it, no, it is but with <laughs> with gay men since we're you know, we're a minority, right? I mean, we don't we don't go around and maybe if you're in the gay community, quote unquote, you know a lot of gay people and maybe you have some gay friends. But on average, people you meet at the gym, people you meet at the grocery store, the cute clerk, the checkout counter guy, right? They're they're most likely gonna be straight. And so in in general, I think when two gay people meet of any kind or any persuasion, there's always just a little latent tension there. I have older guy friends who, uh, gay friends, all older gay men who I'm friends with, who I have no sexual interest in. I'm still friends with them. I still enjoy hanging out with them. But at every point in those relationships, I kind of have to set a line and say, okay, well, you know, I like you as a friend, but we're not going to sex. Right. And maybe that's why. Do, why do you have to make that explicit? Is it because you get a sense that they're angling for more? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I think that's fairly common because I think that when two gay men come into contact in most situations, and you know, in most situations, right? I mean, if you're taken or, well, actually, there's a lot of open relationships, but um, in most situations, if if you're a straight guy and you're meeting another straight guy or another straight girl, there's not necessarily any tension inherent in that. I I think that in my experience, when I meet other straight guys. There's always just a little tension, and it might not even be anything serious, but um, there's a little sexual tension, there's a little emotional tension, because now you both know something about each other, right? You have something in common that you don't have in common with other people. It's like a secret handshake, you're in the same club. Mm -hmm. And I think that for that reason, a lot of intimacy as being gay is about sex. Right. It's like there's there's more sex, but that's also for a lot of people their form of intimacy. And so uh you don't have, at least in my experience, these relationships where you go on four or five dates and then you start hooking up. It's like the first date, you're having sex and you're being intimate with each other to see if you really like each other like that. Hmm. And I say that what the experience that Trace and Sultan have described 
are atypical from what I've seen, which is not to say that they don't happen sometimes. Yeah. So part of the reason, I, the, the way you describe it is that because sex is given such a low threshold, it becomes kind of akin to a handshake, right? Sometimes, yes. Because it's like, why Why not? Why not have sex? Like, what's the problem? Yeah. If if I'm into him and he's into me, there's no barriers. We, mm-hmm. We've both had sex before. We've both had casual hookups before, right? And so in my experience, that's sort of the default culture. People who don't fall into that tend to come in a couple flavors. They're either people who really seriously want a relationship, kind of like what Trace and Sultan were describing, or generally, and there might be one or two other cases I'm missing, they're a little closeted, Hmm. right? So if I talk to a guy and he's really reluctant to show me pictures of himself or he's reluctant to meet in person or he's just a little shy, it usually means he's fairly new to being gay. Because once you've been gay for a while and you've been exposed to enough of the culture, any shame you might feel, any anxiety or apprehensions, they all sort of get drilled out of you. You were alluding to this. The fact that you're part of a minority, that will necessarily change a lot of the dynamics that you operate in. So uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, if you're a gay man living in modern society, most of the men that you encounter are going to be uh, straight as you go through your day. But then once you know this specific subset is gay, it kind of opens up this weird bubble of vulnerability that you can feel safe in. Is that is that a good way to describe it? I think that's a good way to describe it. I don't know if Sultan or Trace want to flesh that out. I think that one of the key things to understand about a lot of it all is that a great deal of... So I've heard a lot of gay culture attributed before to, you know, um, being marginalized, being pushed to the edges of society, things like that. And while there's not zero truth there, I think a great deal of the dynamic can be explained simply by recognizing that a lot of guys have a pretty high sex drive. And if they are paired with other people who also have similar sex drives then the natural result is a very sexualized culture um, and a tendency to zero a lot of it on that, especially when that's the shared aspect of identity, sort of binding this group together, as it were, is um, is this sexual element. It just, it, it becomes very easy culturally for it to just default to lots of sex and, uh, yeah, lots of casualness around it. Do you think that acts as a barrier to further intimacy uh, as a distraction? Uh, I think for some people it does, uh, probably for a fair few people. Um, I don't think it needs to act as a barrier for further intimacy. Uh, my, Again, I, I can only go by my experience and by my observations, but my impression really is that... You're supposed uh, to say lived experience. Sure, sure. <laughs> my lived experience is that People who make it clear that they're seeking commitment and looking for something more than casual relationships can find it, that it isn't a massive barrier. But other people have had different experiences, so it's hard to say that with a high degree of certainty. Hmm. Sultan? Yeah, I'd echo that. I'd uh, mostly echo what uh, Trace is saying and um, just note that the dynamic that Shakes noted of there being sort of a lot of focus on sex in a lot of spaces that are like specifically frequented by gay men uh, results in 
a certain amount of like interference with uh, people who actually want to get something more than sex um, out of it. I mean, I think that's a reason why I was, like I said, never really involved in gay hookup culture because I didn't uh, see that from the outside as a particularly effective way of pursuing a serious relationship. And I'd also note in terms of the whole um, sex conferring value thing that I think what then resultantly gets more, well, more in some circles prized among gay men is that um, emotional connection. Like, you're worthy of being more than just a hookup. You're worthy of uh, being somebody that somebody else wants to uh, build a life together with. So maybe this was already answered, but why do you think that the emotional connection aspect is so rare within this community? Um, Me personally? Um, Anyone. Also, you can, you can challenge the premise of my question. Yeah. I'd have to think a bit about that, honestly, Um, as to, I feel like it's kind of a reflection and as well as something that contributes to it, to the fact that like long lasting pair bonding is kind of, under siege among people in general not just gay people and that has a lot to do with um i think what dan savage in a podcast that we'll link in the show notes um noted as being like the gayification of straight relationships (laughs) and yeah and that's a topic that uh, could be talked about at length the fact that um well (laughs) <laughs> Tinder is most definitely not synonymous with Grinder, but uh, sort of the basic conceit of uh, app-based uh, matchups came largely out of the gay community. Results in like quite a lot of straight relationships nowadays kind of mimicking the dynamics of gay relationships as far as uh, just sort of like maintaining a lot of side flings just sort of like um trying to maximize your body count or whatever you call it anyway (laughs) yeah so i I do want to talk about the parallels uh any other anything else to chime in about um i guess like why it's uh, less focused on relationships before we move on to parallels i i think it also matters that gay guys just have had so many sexual partners i think that in general, for straight and gay people, uh, the more relationships you have and the more partners you have, the less excited you are about new ones. And, you know, you can find that really rare person who excites you, and that's possible for everybody. But when you've had 50 partners already, then the next partner, it's like, okay, well, he's good looking, but, you know, his his ass isn't the best I've ever seen. His voice isn't the, isn't the sexiest I've ever heard. You know, oh, I liked that thing he did here, but not that other thing that he did. It it just becomes very easy to compare. Whereas, you know, a lot of people's most intense loves are sometimes their first loves, right? And in order to mature, you almost have to have your first love and then be heartbroken. And then you're ready for a real relationship. But when you've had, you know, 45 different partners... Is that your body count? It becomes easy to say, okay, well, the next guy, he's not so special. I've I've <laughs> been with guys that were like him before. This is just some fun. I'll have some fun and, and then I'll move on. He won't really have meant anything to me because may, maybe number one means something. Maybe number two means something. Number 73 is just a speed bump. Well, uh, 
the way you describe it, it, I think it's, it would make it easy to fall into a trap of cynicism. Uh, is there anything that still excites you despite the abundance of, of booty you're getting? Um, or dick, you know, we haven't, we haven't established our, our top bottom dichotomy here. We'll, we'll talk about that if you want. <laughs> well, we- <laughs> I'll say that, um, emotional intelligence and that emotional connection can be really exciting, but it also has to be paired with physical attraction. I, I, I'll say that I think that valuing the way your partner looks is not actually a shallow thing. I think it's important that you like the way they look, that you're excited to look at them, that you turn each other on. And so you, you need a little bit of both. But in my experience, it's really hard to find a little bit of both. I think that most gay guys haven't quite examined themselves in a really mature way. And I can qualify that if you like, but that's the basic idea. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to hear you qualify it. I, if you're okay, we could, I was also going to ask you what it's like to be a Trump supporter within the gay, gay community. I imagine that adds a lot of friction. I, I just don't tell anybody about that at all. Right, but do you feel like that hinders you because you have to keep something secret? No. So um, anybody who has read any of my posts under you, Shakespeare, on the Mott might have this impression of me as one way politically, but I have a lot of mixed ideas about a lot of things. I don't consider supporting Donald Trump to mean that I uh, have all of these opinions that offend a lot of people on a lot of dimensions. And so I find that when I talk with gay guys or even just my gay friends, I just emphasize different aspects of my political spectrum and my personality. But would it be fair to say that I guess like most of the gay community is is very much anti-Donald Trump. And they oh, would yeah. see support for Donald Trump as kind of like a mark of the beast. I think all the most vocal ones. I think with most gay guys, if I told them that I liked Donald Trump, that would be the end of the conversation. Right. And I, mean, it- I, I remember one time I was in Chicago. I was talking with this guy. He was really cute. He really liked me. Uh, we were just having a conversation. And I mentioned the fact that I was unvaccinated. And mind you, I'm unvaccinated for a medical reason. So for me, it's not even a political thing. Uh, immediate block, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because, hey, why not? We might have had a connection over some period of time, but there's a thousand other guys you could be talking to right now. And if you like Donald Trump or if you're an anti-vaxxer or if you're politically somehow weird, uh, why bother? You know, I just cast my net for somebody who's more perfect, who's more of my fantasy. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I understand what you're saying. I'm just more trying to tease out whether it feels especially pronounced given just how, how, how disparate, um, what's the word I'm looking for? How imbalanced it is. Does that make you, let me see if I can rephrase it. Like what I'm trying to get at is you shakes as a gay man, you're in a minority. And then mm-hmm. as a gay man that supports Donald Trump, that's an even smaller minority, right? Mm-hmm. Does that feel isolating? It can. Um, I, I try to think of it as I have some friends that I relate to about Donald Trump and I have some friends that I relate to about being gay. And I accept the fact that, you know, nobody I relate to on every facet with. Holy shit. I just saw, I literally just saw a bald eagle fly right now. (laughs) (laughs) Donald Trump. (laughs) Right outside my window. (laughs) It's an omen. (laughs) 
<laughs> what I just said must have been really good, huh? <laughs> I'm in the middle of a city. Like, what the fuck is it doing? <laughs> okay. The most patriotic episode of the Bailey. <laughs> this episode has been fact-checked by real American patriots, the bald eagles. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to ask more questions about parallels. Uh, anything else I uh, want to add on this subject? No, got it. Okay. Uh, so I think one of the universal ways that humans try to understand, understand each other is to find some parallel and map it onto uh, their own experience. I talked about how straight men, I think, uh, potentially pursue sex. If there's a dichotomy of, let's say, dominant and submissive roles when it comes to the pursuer and the pursuee between men and women in a straight uh, relationship, is there anything similar to that in gay relationships? Like, let's say, top and bottom. I would say that most gay sex, certainly most sex that I've had, most gay guys that I know, in a straight relationship would be called BDSM. Um, may maybe not in the sense that you're bringing out the calipers and the whips. Nobody's getting chained up. But um, from my impressions, talking to my straight friends, if they're dealing with a girl, she likes to be slapped, she likes to be choked, she likes to be called names... She's a little kinky. My experience talking with guys, if they like to be slapped, if they like to be chilled, that just means that they like having gay sex. This is a, so we'll link to the Dan Savage Ezra Klein uh, podcast episode. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. This is what Dan Savage referred to as the gayification of straight relationships, where one thing that stood out about what he said is uh, in Dan Savage's first experience, when he was about to have sex with, for the first time, the guy asked him, what are you into? Um, I thought that was interesting because there's no set script on how to have sex as a gay man, I suppose. There's no ph ph physiological differences that naturally coalesce into uh, <laughs> mechanical uh, defaults. So you have to create your own uh, script. And uh, the idea of being intentional about what you want and being intentional about talking about what you want uh, it seems compelling to assume or to conclude that that came as an artifact of uh, gay relationships. Is that fair? I think it goes even further than that and further than just uh, intimacy because there's no real script of how to um, form a relationship uh, when you're talking about two men. Uh, just because like so much of like the script that we draw from as regards relationships uh, comes from like the idea of a man and a woman that we largely grow up with. Uh, I mean, it's been interesting in my experience. Um, I mean, hopefully Trace can echo this. I consider uh, getting married as a gay man to be much less of a hassle because so many of the wedding traditions revolve around the bride. And so there's <laughs> much less to worry about with two grooms. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll say uh, in my wedding, there was still a fair amount to worry about, but uh, having never married a bride, I can only assume that it would have been more if a bride was in the picture, yes. But I do think there's a lot of truth to what Sultan is saying in general about uh, there really is only a very loose script at best for what a gay relationship is in society as it stands. Like, obviously, you know, it's not like we're the first generation to be openly gay, but we're we're close. Um, and we're the first generation to be 
openly getting married to men. Um, and gender roles that enter into uh, straight relationships, um, social scripts that enter into them, a lot of it you really are just winging it in a gay relationship. You're looking around and you're figuring out, well, what makes sense for us? What level of, like, who, who should handle what? Who's going to lead in this case? Who's going to handle uh, this element of the household? There's, there's an element of negotiation to every relationship. It's unavoidable, but I do think that there's very much a feel of making it up as you go along in gay relationships with the consciousness that you really aren't working from a script that's been played out again and again that has long generations of history advising you along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, what I see is the second order effects and how it applies. Let's talk about straight people for once. Uh, I just see the second order effects of how uh, it impacts uh, heterosexual relationships where a lot of the defaults that have been baked in over potentially millennia, they start to be questioned by the participants. Like, wait, why, wait, why are we doing this th this way? Do we have to? Uh, and it shakes up a lot of the normalcy that settles down. And that seems to me like a, a good thing to be continuously questioning the, your defaults and why you're doing something. It is. And it isn't the line that I like to repeat again and again after, uh, one of my online friends said it is that a cage is also a frame. I think there is a lot of value in having uh, things that look like restrictions to build on and to build around and to shape us. I think that freedom as in absence of all expectations sounds really nice to a lot of people and has its perks. But I think you really are missing out on something when you don't have clear patterns to build off of and clear scripts that you can choose to follow as defaults. Because it's it's a lot more work if you need to invent everything from scratch. Um, it, it's very helpful to have guidelines. It's very helpful to have uh, posts directing you. If you don't have any other ideas, this is what you do. If you don't have any other ideas, this is what you do. Uh, versus trying to uh, take charge and plan it all out. Most of the time, you know, your own individual planning, you're, you're honestly not going to do better than time-tested things. So I, I, at this point, I do want to ask about your, I want to bring up your background, Trace. You're an ex-Mormon. Yes. How much do you think your drive, what you described as this preference or uh, proclivity towards finding a semblance of normancy, or at least uh, uh, recycling whatever uh, vestigial structure of uh, tradition that may prove useful and repurposing it for your own uh, uh, benefit. How much do you think, how much of that can be derived from your need for, or your pursuit for structure given your background? Yeah. I mean, I think my background plays into every element of my life and this is definitely no exception. I appreciated the structure of my childhood. It wasn't a traumatic childhood. It wasn't an upsetting childhood in any way. It was a really extraordinarily stable and good and happy childhood um, in terms of family life. And, you know, I look up to the relationship that my parents had. I appreciate the way that they raised us. And so when I'm trying to build a model of my own life, what I become conscious of is 
so much that they relied on, so many of the scripts that they built their life around, I am stepping away from. And when you are stepping away from that sort of thing, it carries obligations with it. It carries a sense of duty that if you are stepping away from all of this, you'd better be sure that you can, uh, that, that you're ready to take it all on. How, mu- how much of that do you think is guilt? None. Okay. I, I feel no guilt about any of this. Um, you understand yeah. the premise of my question though, right? Sure. Um, yeah, I do. The question of, you know, is there vestigial religious guilt that's kind of motivating me to try to justify, try to do things like that? I, I, I don't really see any of that. I, uh, when I left Mormonism, I was very, very confident in my reasoning for it. I remain very confident in my reasoning for it. And I never, before I left Mormonism, I never really stepped out of the bounds of Mormonism. I was trying to be exact within that domain up until I realized, okay, I am no longer continuing within this. Having done that, stepping away, um, it always felt like the next natural step of progression and never once in my life have I felt guilty about being attracted to men or uh, falling in love with my husband, anything like that. Any of this, it, it's never played any role. Uh, this is perhaps going to be an imperfect uh, analogy, but you know, as a parallel to my own experience, uh, I used to be Muslim, and uh, around when I was 20 years old, I... I came out of the closet and told my, my mom that I'm not Muslim anymore. And um, I have since been an atheist uh, the, the whole time. I recall this, uh, this acute concern of hers that I was going to be bad now. Like I was going to get someone pregnant. I was going to start doing drugs. I was going to do all sorts of uh, shenanigans. And I, did, I have to admit that I did feel a, some sort of pressure where me stepping out of the faith as a way to assuage her fears I wanted to demonstrate, no, like I'm still a good person. Like here's, here's like all the cool things that I'm doing. Uh, that's, that's the basis of the, the question, uh, that I had in mind, uh, whether and how much of this drive towards normalcy is, uh, I don't want to say performative because that implies that it's fake, but it's, it's more, I guess, like a South where you're like, I'm just like you, like, but I have sex with a dude, like type thing. It's this comforting South. I, I wouldn't describe it in those terms. I would describe it as those are things that I valued in my life, observing that I valued them, uh, changing my positioning relative to, uh, you know, an institution didn't change my fundamental values. So when reflecting on the sort of life I wanted to build, it uh, many of those values carried over, um, not because I wanted to prove anything in specific, but because those were the values that I had. Hmm. I can chime off of that. Yeah, I guess my experience is a bit different. I don't really come from a religious or a conservative background uh, to speak of. Yeah, in terms of like trying to recapture some frame of normalcy in my life, like something I had to grapple with as far as departing from what's considered the standard, not just among gay men, but among like just couples in general, is the fact that the first person that I had a serious relationship with um, was the man that I ended up marrying. And that's not, well, the man part would have been uh, strange, but 
the idea of like your first relationship uh, being the person that you marry wouldn't necessarily have been considered strange back in the old days. Uh, and I had to grapple with the idea of it being seen as a strange thing nowadays and thinking like, okay, why is that? Is the idea that you're supposed to, um, that you're supposed to play the field until you're aware of what you like? Well, why should I necessarily give up on this relationship just because it's my first one? Like, if I know what I like and I know that I have it, then there's not really any reason to feel that you have to move on from that just because of what you consider the prevailing uh, societal notions to be. Yeah, so you described pressure that you were trying to resist, like pressure to be more promiscuous, uh, potentially. Yeah, yeah, just something that uh, has never entirely sat right with me is the idea that some kind of uh, natural expression of being gay involves, like, being involved with uh, promiscuity and everything like that. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of different ways to be gay, and none of them are necessarily the right way. Yeah. Shakes, you want to add anything? Yeah, I'm kind of thinking of two things. So related to the religious conversation, I grew up Catholic, and in some important ways, I would still consider myself Catholic. It would be more accurate to call myself Catholic than ex-Catholic. And when I first started going out and hooking up with guys and doing things that are decidedly not Catholic, I had expected that I would go through all this shame and this guilt, taking pictures of myself and flirting with guys and going out. I was prepared to feel all these repressed feelings that I think is in the popular idea and the popular imagination of what it's like to grow up Catholic or even just to grow up and realize you're gay and have a flowering. And when I actually went out and started hooking with guys, I didn't feel any of the shame or apprehensions or anxieties that I felt like I was supposed to feel. And I, I think that kind of takes me to my second idea, which is something I, I know I think you wanted to talk about. But, you know, comparing some of our experience here, Trace and Sultan and I, I, I have this almost boomer quip that I like to think about and that I want to introduce. So to paraphrase Shakespeare, I, I, I think that we're all gay in slightly different ways. I don't think there's just one cause of being gay. And so when we talk about, say, relating to relationships or defining what the roles are, and we can talk about some of those roles, but I, I, I think everybody gets there in different paths. And so to paraphrase Shakespeare, I would say that some men are born gay, some men achieve gayness, and some men have gayness thrust upon them. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right? And, you know, I, I think I think the kinds of things we're talking about are actually all slightly different from each other because my experience is slightly different from Trace's experience. And that doesn't mean that we're not both called gay, but in some important sense, our experiences are just fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the big frustrations that comes with a lot of gay people, because we were talking about the need for intimacy and how whenever you meet another gay man, there's a sort of tension that is latent there that you need to address at some point. Like, are you into each other or are you not into each other? Um, there's this idea floating around that we're all gay. And when you meet other gay men, they'll be just like you. And it's not just that 
we all have different personalities. We all have different lifestyles. And, you know, there's lots of things that make people different. It's that when you try interacting with the gay community, it's like what Sultan was saying about not wanting to be involved with the promiscuity. When, when you try interacting with the gay community, uh, lots of people in it are gay in a different way from me or from Trace or from Sultan. And so there's this idea that we all have this thing in common and we all have this safe secret club, this safe space, and we come together and we share our feelings and our thoughts. And reality is quite different. And I think it's a really big tension and disappointment of being gay that when you actually start meeting other gay people, uh, they can be really quite different from you. And not just, again, in the sense that your personalities are different or your personalities clash, but the kinds of things that made them gay or that they feel about being gay are different from the things that you might feel about being gay. Yeah. And Shakes, I think this is something that you, I think, uh, expressed before where uh, you have a certain discomfort with the label gay, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'll call myself gay because it's convenient and everybody knows what I mean. And obviously I'm, I'm doing gay things and I'm not <laughs> trying to, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not denying that. I'm not sitting here coping about it, but, um, I, I feel like the term gay is such a broad and it, it, it's a broad term in the sense that it captures a lot of different things. And it's also a highly specific term because it carries a lot of modern cultural assumptions. You know, people 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, people in a non-Western society wouldn't necessarily think of gayness the way we do. And for convenience's sake, I'll call myself gay. That's the easiest way of putting it. Everybody knows what I mean when I say that. But there's a lot of things that I say when I say I'm gay that I don't necessarily mean. Right. right. There's this, uh, it's like dredging up a constellation of meaning. You use the yeah. word gay, it conjures up all these uh, extracurricular uh, traits that you don't necessarily adopt. Uh, for example, you're, you know, you're a Donald Trump supporter. And most people would, when they hear gay, they assume a very specific niche stereotype of that, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's certain images associated with being gay. And I, I don't always like bringing those images up. I I don't really think of my identity, quote unquote, as this series of labels that I'm applying to myself. Like I, I am who I am and I don't think of myself as gay. I don't think of myself as six foot zero being a part of my identity. I don't think of myself. I, 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 I'm a top. I'll say that, but I don't think of that as part did of this. My... Did this just become a dating uh, <laughs> profile? Uh, yeah. When you're writing a dating profile, you got to put these things on there, right? Elevator pitch of what your personality is like. All right. We'll put your email in, in the show notes and I can confirm shakes looks Shakes looks like Superman in real life. So he's charming. He's intelligent. You can't go wrong. Yeah, that's uh, true. Email him <laughs> if you want to hook up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, there's a demonstrated uh, enforcement of conformity to this archetype. The one that comes to mind is Pete Buttigieg and how he was deemed not gay enough because he just like wanted to gay marry his husband and like gay adopt some kids and be complete fucking normies. Yeah. And, you know, that's, there are, there's sort of these competing philosophies within it all, where you have some people who are really into the whole idea of, uh, as they would put it, queer liberation, where they want to be 
different from straight people and reject all of these institutions of heteronormativity and uh, so forth. And just like, you know, we're queer, we're here, get over it, um, so forth. Um, and then there are, you know, there are the people who judge type gays. I am probably unsurprisingly very much a people to judge type gay. Um, I, I've never seen the point to trying to overthrow or trying to like throw off the shackles, whatever of all institutions, not really my thing, but, but there is a tension between it. And I would say a lot of times there's sort of a, I, I don't want to put words in other people's mouths, but there is sort of a mutual distaste to a degree between people in those two groups a lot of times where, you know, the ones might see the others as, you know, that not gay enough vibe. Whereas, um, someone in the Pete Buttigieg gay camp can look and be like, eh, it's all a bit much in it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a, there's this article I really want to highlight. It's by, um, a history professor that wrote a review of Stonewall and, it's the movie Stonewall. He used that mostly as like a, a branching off point to discuss the main dynamics at play. By the way, yeah, Marsha Johnson was not the first one that uh, threw the brick. That's not that's not, that's kind of besides the point. But this was uh, this was a post by a historian goes to the movies where he talks about the dynamics around the 1960s in the gay community. And broadly speaking, he divides it into two camps. There's the the butches and the queens. The butches were basically the Mattachine society, where if you look up pictures of Mattachine society, they're all like fucking wearing black suits with skinny ties and like these nice glasses. They look so professional. And the whole point of the Mattachine society, which was a gay society around the 50s and 60s, was to present to the world, look, we're just normal. We just fuck guys. But we're, we're otherwise completely normal and we look really nice in a suit. Whereas the queens, quote unquote, were more were younger and they were kind of like brasher, uh, especially around Stonewall. A lot of them were homeless, de- trying to survive outside of the regular nine to five normie lifestyle. And there was this tension between them because the queens wanted to be radical and like loud and like really fuck shit up, but the Mattachines were trying to seek uh, acceptance through respectability. And you can kind of see who won that fight. Unfortunately, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there might be some benefits to both uh, approaches that I can identify, but the, it's it's interesting to see uh, how once a particular dynamic was favored, uh, re in this case, fuck shit up dynamic, then it's it makes sense that a lot of other things would also be encouraged. Meaning, anytime you do become uh, a normie gay couple that you're seen as a, a betrayer to the founding ideals of the gay movement. And I'll link this to the show no- uh, in the show notes. It's called Stonewall, a, but- a butch too far. Excellent article. Yeah. I find it interesting as to how it breaks down and also to some extent as to how self-identification can, or like the words that we use to describe ourselves can become something of a shibboleth, like those younger generations. Um, they talk about like if somebody uses the word queer to describe themselves uh, rather than gay, then that's usually a fairly reliable shibboleth. If somebody calls themselves queer, they are probably not a conservative. Like mm-hmm. gay people have always had like and Andrew Sullivan's, Peter Thiel's, etc. 
um, people who happen to be gay, but uh, whose political alignment swings conservative. Um, queer is a lot more of a political label. And I would say that I actually became more comfortable uh, in describing myself as gay when I was able to specify uh, gay, but not queer, you know? <laughs> Why did you fit, what did you get out of making that distinction? Well, it's like, um, oh, actually, I should uh, find something to link in the show notes if this website still exists. Um, a formerly infamous website called uh, Everyday Feminism that special specialized in like some extremely clickbait uh, listicles. Um, one of them that was popular. Oh, yes, here it is. Three differences between the terms gay and queer and the author of this said something to the effect of like um how can i describe myself as a man who's attracted to men when i'm not entirely sure whether i'm a man anymore <laughs> so so you, yeah, so like, you described that uh, there's still some anchors remaining not everything is is up for grabs in a way yeah um you can also kind of see the breakdown as to who flies the, um, like, I'm, I'm going to say traditional rainbow flag. <laughs> right. <laughs> Return. <laughs> as opposed to the one with all the additional add-ons now. <laughs> like, it has ironically become... The I mean, hate my, speech rainbow flag. <laughs> yeah, my husband calls it the Tory flag. It is. <laughs> the Tory rainbow flag. <laughs> Can't wait to see the Confederate troops in the upcoming <laughs> Civil War <laughs> brandished. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else about normalcy? Um, yeah, there's, I mean, like, as far as, what was it, like, online stuff is oftentimes, like, the popularized end of academic discourse. There's, like, a whole lot of articles in journals that nobody reads on terms like homonormativity, the idea that um, people who popularize um, the idea of gay couples conform or like being in monogamous relationships that uh, sort of imitate in some ways the monogamous like married straight couples who would like adopt or have children through surrogacy and sort of yearn for that kind of traditional domestic life that oh they're they're trying to normalize um, expression of gayness is just like assimil assimilation as opposed to opening up the gender spectrum sorry i'm trying <laughs> try trying to uh charitably describe that position without straw manning and probably not doing a very good job <laughs> um <laughs> yeah I, I think that there are definitely going to be people f who instinctively see um on the flip side of that any attempts among gay people to sort of like seek out the ideals that they see expressed in like committed straight relationships except with two men or two women as like inauthentic and who think that like the ideal of that like the ideal of embracing embracing nonconformism in that way is by necessity like to eschew the idea of marriage or monogamy or whatever 
Um, that tension has sort of always been around and it's probably never going to go away. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, events like Stonewall definitely did a lot to determine the course that the movement as a whole was going to follow. But I don't think it's necessarily been all-consuming. Like, I think the whole quest for gay marriage was definitely something that, even though it was, like, painted as progressive at the time, it's kind of fundamentally a conservative request. That's the reason why people like Andrew Sullivan were all in favor of it, and that's the reason why it hasn't really... um, state is a hot button issue ever since it was decided in 2015 as much as they try and make some stuff about like say clarence thomas's uh citing obergefell as like a decision that should be revisited there's no genuine groundswell of support for reverting things to pre the legalization of gay marriage so that w- that would be a, a follow-up question one i mean i don't know if we we can tackle it but why was there and is there any negative reaction to gay men, period? Sometimes that's like, a, a, that might be a too obvious a question, but any any interest in answering that? I think there has definitely been, well, it's like people talk a lot about the issues that girls who maybe like gender non-conforming face as far as like, like not living up to standards of what people expect Uh, women should be like i think there's less emphasis given to the blowback that men get that men get for uh not being seen as filling up to or living up to their duty as such yeah there there was there appears to be a distinct you know i'm trying to think back in the recesses of my memory to remember the days when gay marriage was seen as a divisive issue Nowadays, it enjoys broad support, even among conservatives. Uh, I think even Republicans are like polled at 60 or 70% in favor or something to that effect. I might be off, but the, there has been extremely surprising to me, uh, increase in just how passive people are about the enterprise. It's like, yeah, it's fine. Uh, which is a stark difference from the vociferous uh, pushback that I received before. And back then, you know, I'm talking about like 20, 15 years ago, there was, there appears to have been a a difference between how lesbian couples were received and how gay couples were received, where lesbian couples were seen as less threatening than gay couples. And I never really dissected or understood why that was. I I have some thoughts about that if I can jump in. Go ahead. I I think there's a couple things to say. I, I think the most important and first thing to say is that from just like a basic animal point of view, gay sex and a lot of the things that gay men get up to, it's disgusting. <laughs> I, I just think it basically is. And it, it's disgusting in the same way that if your whole life, if you've had chicken nuggets and hamburgers and somebody tries to give you some, I don't know, Indian curry or sushi and you've never had it before, there's like a disgust reaction. And a lot of disgust reaction, it's innate and then you sort of culturally train yourself out of it. I mean, some of the things that I do during sex, I would have thought would have sounded disgusting as a kid. <laughs> Maybe when you're a kid, all sex sounds disgusting. I don't know. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that a big part of it is just the disgust response. And the well, sex... I, 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 want, I want you to continue. I'll just uh, quickly offer this snippet as, uh, as evidence. So when I used to be Muslim, I... Uh, 
also used to be a big homophobe. When my friend in high school came out of the closet, I just thought it was completely gross. I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want to touch touch him. And I told him like I'm not I'm not talking to you anymore. I, I cut him off. Uh, this is something I'm I'm deeply ashamed of having done uh, at this point. Uh, and I did uh, reach out to him like decades ago, and and we patched things up. Uh, but the I never really understood why I just adopted that tenet without really examining it. It just, it was for me, a purely disgust reaction. My, my religion said it was bad and I just kind of accepted it without really thinking about it. And when I became an atheist, it didn't bother me anymore. And I, I don't really have a, a good explanation for that. Well, I, I think that religion in general, and this is a thorny issue that could get into all sorts of conversations. I think religion is sort of rooted in the same feelings that bring about a disgust reaction, right? Religion has a moral sense of right and wrong, and there's always prohibitions around food, around sex, around the way you're supposed to live that come out of sort of natural disgust feelings. And I, I, I'm not saying that as a critical thing. I'm just trying to put it out in a flat way because... I think that in modern society, especially today, and when we talk about, say, an American idea of liberalism, an American idea of atheism, an American idea of a secular culture, uh, these ideas sort of train us out of feeling the disgust reaction. We all have the thought that, well, okay, maybe that wouldn't float my boat, but it's their business. It's not my business. They can do whatever they want in their bedrooms. I'm not going to get involved in that. They're not inflicting their choices on me, right? So they're free to do what they want. And I don't actually think that that's like a normal behavior throughout human society and human history. I think that most of human history, we're not just talking about homophobes in the 1950s or the 1900s, whole history of the Catholic Church or most traditional societies you want to look at with some caveats because um, there's a lot of gender theology around gayness in certain tribal societies, which is an interesting topic, actually. But I think in most societies, gay men having gay sex is just sort of flatly disgusting. And th there's a lot of things I can say about that. I'm not endorsing that reaction. But if you're, say, a homophobe, and you think it's innately disgusting, and then you start researching the amounts of STDs that gay men have, or the number of sexual partners that gay men tend to have, like the facts all sort of reinforce that disgust reaction. And I actually think kind of controversially that a lot of gay pride and a lot of gay uh, thinking has to ignore some of these issues or rephrase them in ways that sound less like what they are, right? So th this is a, almost a separate conversation and I don't want to go too far afield, but when people talk about AIDS and the HIV crisis of the 80s, there's this sort of tendency to blame Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan, the federal government didn't do enough. Here's this pandemic and it's spreading between gay men and nobody cares about us because we're marginalized and we're outcasts. When you look at the figures and the statistics for how AIDS is spread, you really have to be having a lot of sex on average to get it, even if you're having sex with somebody who actually has it. Um, it's not a high transmission vector disease. Well, can you can you give one example of, of the stats you remember, just to get get a sense of scale? I, I I think as a gay man, if you have sex with another gay man, and the odds are slightly different for top and bottom, 
But if you have sex with another gay man who has HIV, that one sexual encounter, your odds of getting it yourself are sub 1%. I believe that's a statistic. There's lots of complicating factors in there, uh, right? How long is a sexual encounter? And I'm, I'm not sure that a lot of this stuff has actually ever been properly adjudicated. My point is only to say that I think on a lot of these issues, um, gay people are uncomfortable of thinking it in their terms in the same way that no woman wants to be told that, yeah, if you dress like a slut, people might treat you that way, uh, right? That's victim blaming. Uh, nobody in the gay community wants to be told that, hey, we are a promiscuous culture. We're having a lot of sex. That's going to spread disease and it's not anybody's fault, but ours, right? And I, I think that there's a reluctance to talk about some of these things openly and frankly. And part of it is because if we do, it will be ammunition for the homophobes. And so I think there's a balance there because to really talk about some of these things honestly means granting that once in a while, the anti-gay people might have had a point or they might have been right for the wrong reasons from a gay point of view, something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And just to give you a, give everyone a sense of scale, this is from CDC. Uh, we'll put a link to the show notes the, about HIV exposure, but for, um, what is it for receptive penile vaginal sex? It's eight in, uh, instances of transmission per 10,000 exposures for receptive uh, anal sex between men, two men. It's 138 instances of expo uh, transmission for every 10,000 instances of uh, exposure. So the, the risk is much, much, much higher. And it's not surprising that AIDS and HIV like blew up within the gay community when it did, because obviously there was no talk of condoms because there was no concern about pregnancy. Uh, and given how much people were having sex and how little they knew about the disease, it's not surprising, right? Well, yes and no. Uh, I, I agree with you, except that when you get into the history of some of the first spreaders of the disease, and some of this history is now considered controversial, there's a couple figures in particular who are seen as sort of the, uh, the, the gay men who did the most to spread it. And now there's some controversy. There's some new history about, well, were those men unfairly blamed by a homophobic society, which... Might be an interesting question, but I feel is incidental to the main point, which, again, this is a thing that I think a lot of gay people, uh, if you talk about it, they'll sort of deny it or they won't know. Uh, the, the, the gay men who did the most to spread AIDS in the 80s, they were having lots of sexual partners. Like, we're talking hundreds. Mm -hmm. And there was some sense that it could be spread through sex. There was some sense pretty quickly of it being a sexually transmitted disease because when you start talking to people and you find, okay, you've got this disease, you've got this disease, he's got it. What do they all have in common? Right? right. You start getting to the bottom of it fairly quickly. And I think even in some of the stories, and it gets a little vulgar, so I don't want to go into the details necessarily, but um, there, there was even one guy who was kind of infamous because he knew he was sick somehow and he knew that spreading sex was spreading the disease. And he would tell that to people after he had had sex with them, that he had just infected them. And so I, I, I think that there's a lot of uncomfortable truths at the heart of gay sex practices that people only want to talk about positively. And hey, you know what? I'll say... Uh, I think having sex is fun. 
I think I've made some great connection with different guys through having sex. I think that there's a kind of relationship you can have that um, would be hard to explain to straight people. So I'm not sitting here and trying to judge it in a sort of Puritan sense, but all of that comes with disease risks. It comes with the other kinds of risks you take when you have sex, right? Psychological risks, your emotional stability and and the vulnerabilities that come with having sex. And I don't think that within the gay community or gay spaces, people always talk about those things honestly. Yeah. And I can identify a similar pattern when in current discussions about, you know, trans identity and um, sex reassignment surgery, um, where talk about, uh, you know, complications with surgery is, is discouraged because it's seen as giving ammo to the other side. And now that, now that we have, I guess, a lot of distance from the HIV uh, epidemic throughout the 80s, I'm trying to think what is exactly the best way to evaluate that kind of concern because it makes sense. And a lot of uh, um, gay men living through that time, they admitted, they said, you know, this felt like I was condemned by God for my sinful lifestyle. Like this is the best proof that you can possibly get that what you're doing is wrong. You're infected by a plague that just rots your body away. It makes you waste away. Uh, And how do you, uh, I don't know if there is like a a good balance, quote unquote, how do you necessarily approach giving honest feedback and actionable um, advice without impugning uh, the lifestyle or like casting aspersions to it? Trace, you wanted to say something? Yeah, Uh, which is that when the attitude of it's giving ammo to the other side, is 100% factually straightforwardly true that there are people who are absolutely willing to say incredibly nasty, incredibly personal, incredibly ugly things. And when you give them ammo, any sort of ammo, they will use it. When Any sort of acknowledgement of things. So people, people adopt sometimes trench warfare mindset where they feel like any vulnerability they expose someone will hack at it. Someone will um, punch it at it. Someone will, you know, tear it down. Mm-hmm. And there is a reality to that. You know, if you look at, obviously Twitter is a cesspit in all sorts of ways, but if you look at, say, the Twitter of a couple of gay men announcing, you know, they're having a child via surrogacy, then you'll see pretty reliably all sorts of tweets and the replies of, oh, when are they going to molest the kid? Or, oh, they're, um, you know, buying and selling. Just like all sorts of really very ugly accusations and some very personal accusations, uh, aspersions about their character. And, and that sort of thing happens from some people. But those people are almost always going to be a minority and a small minority relative to the amount of people who are well-meaning and who are just trying to figure things out or who are wanting to, you know, just live and let live, wanting to get along. So I think the way you need to balance it is recognizing that some people will be nasty and some people are going to be deeply unpleasant about anything they suspect might be a vulnerability. And, you know, you, you have to brush those people off to an extent while extending grace to those who are willing to extend grace. And you need to, 
I, I think the key for me is you do not want to take the siege mindset, this trench warfare mindset, into an environment where someone is, say, facing the reality that their religion has very clear prohibitions and very clear rules and that they can't overturn one of those without essentially overturning their whole religion. Mm -hmm. So uh, you need to recognize when you're dealing with one versus when you're dealing with the other. And a lot of people don't make this distinction. So in Mormonism, for example, you know, there is a lot of theology built up around marriage is this eternal thing that is the core meaning of existence to have this man and woman get together and raise a family. You know, men and women are complementary. Just all these elements to it that make it so core and so fundamental to their doctrine in a lot of ways that from the perception of a lot of Mormons and the institutional Mormon church to doctrinally include this would be to overturn a tremendous amount of their built-up doctrine, their built-up ideas, in the sense that it's not a load-bearing belief for them. That is, they don't start from the idea of, I don't like gay people, and work backwards from there. They start from the idea of, my religion is true, and mm -hmm. this has brought a lot of benefits to me, and this has brought a lot of meaning to me. And then work from there to, therefore, because of all of this meaning, and because of all of this, these downstream implications, like gay marriage can't be allowed, just necessarily follow from it. And when you're dealing with someone like that, it's a very different thing to dealing with someone who is leading with, no, this is disgusting, and you're disgusting, and all I want to do is mock you. Um, and I think a lot of people conflate those two positions and take a siege mindset into situations that don't need it and make things worse as a result. So I, I want to try to steal Manit, and I'll do it by conjuring up the spirit of Alo. Uh, and let's talk about cousins fucking each other. <laughs> if you ask, if you poll people, like, why is cousin marriage wrong? They usually devolve into a consequentialist view where, well, if they have kids, there's like a higher incidence of genetic uh, defects. That's usually what it boils down to, right? Yeah, I think... So this is, I don't know whether this is one of my silliest takes or one of my best takes, <laughs> um, but my position on a lot of these things is that uh, it's okay to just say that, no, we don't like it because it's gross. However, the things that I like are not gross. <laughs> <laughs> and now I recognize the vulnerabilities in that stance, and I recognize the contradiction in that stance, and I recognize, you know, I'm saying this as someone who is very publicly a gay furry, but incest is gross. Therefore, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay, that doesn't really answer the question when it comes to, to gay sex, obviously. Like, people start with, oh, this is just gross, and I don't want it. But if you, if you, can, if you can articulate something concrete about the risk of gay sex... Doesn't that bolster the argument? Well, if you can articulate something concrete about the risk, and then you can articulate something concrete about how what draws you to it is not the things that other people find gross about it. And this, I think, is key. You know, people, most people's disgust reactions are tuned towards most of the same things, at least initially. And you can modify, and there are 
uh, different things in there. But a lot of times when someone sees, you know, so we were talking earlier about how in a lot of ways, looking at sex in general, a child looking at sex will find a lot of it gross. And I think rightly so. There's, there's just, it, it's weird. Um, but what draws people towards it, towards sex in general, you know, isn't the grossness. It's the sense of intimacy and the sense of connection to another person, the sense of, you know, the good feelings from it, the uh, trust, the, just all of these positive emotional experiences connected to it. And, you know, I think, I, I don't know whether it would actually sway anyone, but looking at gay marriage and looking at gay relationships, the things that people find gross are objectively, in a sense, gross. However, those things aren't what compels people. But, compels- but you do see you do see how it flips the script. Like when you said like religious people, they have an objection to gay marriage or gay relationships. And if you attack it, it may not be a load bearing belief, but they're concerned that it's gonna it's used to shore up their entire belief structure and that if you knock down the pillar, then everything else is gonna come down, right? That's what how that's how you described it. Um is that a yes. fair assessment? Uh, okay, so but then so the corollary is if you can describe like ignore religion completely, but if you can sure. describe a severe consequence of a particular human action, that is enough for most people for them to for to convince most people, okay, maybe this is a bad thing. Like for example, like you know, if, if like having sex with a, a redhead meant that everyone within twenty feet spontaneously combusted, there's going to be a lot of support against having sex, illegal prohibition against having sex with redheads, not because you hate redheads, but just because, Hey, this is a problem. Uh, and I'm trying to draw the parallel with the cousin marriage. And by the way, for the record, cousin marriage is legal in almost the entire world. The only exceptions are the parts of the United States and the Balkans and China for whatever reason. Uh, so it's, it's normalized in most of the world, but we kind of make up these reasons for why it's wrong. Uh, maybe it's, you know, post hoc, reconstruction rather than anything else but i find that there's a, a parallel worth considering here i think most people in as much as they're consequentialists are consequentialists instrumentally in support of things that their instincts already point them towards that is they come to the conclusion first and they find the consequence later having found the consequence they will then retroactively use that to justify the conclusion however once their conclusion flips it's not so much they have looked at all the consequences and concluded, you know, I was wrong on all these consequences. It's then they just turn their focus to whatever other positive consequences they can find. But the, but there's people that you can convince on the margin. And uh, the, point, the point that I want to make sure is clear on my end is I can understand the hesitance that gay uh, activists had in the 80s with acknowledging too much of uh, the risk of AIDS. And I understand it. Uh, I understand the reluctance kind of like in the abstract in that it's possible that people would get a mis, uh, misconception about the risk of the disease and then use that uh, to conjure up a simplified story about how to get rid of this uh, disease by just, you know, banning gay sex or just attributing to the actions of, of gay men. That would be too facile an explanation in my mind because it doesn't, it doesn't try to explore mitigation. It doesn't try to explore the root cause of it, uh, especially when AIDS jumped into, started infecting hetero people. Uh, it doesn't solve any of that. So that would be kind of like my uh, reaction. But I also say that, you know, safely 
sitting down from you know 40 years uh, after the fact, buffered by enough time to to make that observation. So I'm just making a note. Like I can understand the reluctance. I generally don't support arguments as, as soldiers, but I, I I can understand the the motivation here. Anyone want to push back on that? Not that I can think of. I basically agree with you. Okay. Uh, thank you, everyone. <laughs> a parallel to this is a big rallying cry around the issue of gay marriage was born this way. And that's another way, it's part of the public messaging to, to make uh, the gay lifestyle more accepting because if it's not someone's decision, then it's seen as, you know, they're seen as less culpable, quote unquote, uh, because they're just born this way. Like God made them this way. What are your thoughts on, on that slogan? Um, you got, you got a spicy take trace. Oh yeah. Uh, I think that, uh, most or many gay people talking about it will straightforwardly say that born this way was largely a slogan born out of this born out of functionality. It is an argument that works. It is an argument that convinces people. It is an argument that is true to an extent and false to an extent. And in my case, I would say more false than it is true. In the sense that I would describe myself as having been born in such a way that no matter what culture I grew up in, no matter what the context around me was, I would have been fringe in some way. I would have been odd in some way. I would have been askew from the norm in some way. I mean, I was left-handed, so I I was already a little bit demonic. That's gross. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, But like... The nature of my askewness was always going to be determined to a great deal by the cultural context I was in. And in my case, it took until I was in my early 20s before, until after I had stepped away from Mormonism, before I started noticing attraction towards men and started realizing, hey, you know, dudes rock. Um, that was your uh, sexual awakening (laughs) moment (laughs) Um, it's only logical I mean you know when I was young I feel like I sort of as I think a surprising number of religiously scrupulous young men do I cultivated sort of an instinctive disgust reaction towards seeing pictures of women that bordered anywhere near lewd and it was a sense of this is forbidden. This is not the sort of thing I'm supposed to be thinking about or looking at. Therefore, anytime I see it, hint of disgust. Um, and, you know, those feelings have to go somewhere. Uh, in my case, uh, you know, realizing that anthropomorphic animals were cool was sort of a gateway towards uh, exploring those feelings cautiously. Um, and ultimately culminating in realizing, hey, yeah, I like guys. Guys are neat. Um, <laughs> but, but that wasn't a given. There was nothing about that route that was set in stone. It was all very much determined by growing up in this moment where all of that was straightforwardly an option. And in another moment, um, I don't know, you know, what exactly I would have looked like or what sort of path exactly I would have pursued. But I think it would have been quite different. And, you know, for a lot of gay guys, it's much certain, much earlier, like 
you know, my husband knew from a very early age that this was where his feelings lay. And uh, it, it's different for people, but but that's how it was for me. Yeah, and I got to say, I, I totally don't understand why anyone is attracted to men. Um, <laughs> I recognize that some women are attracted to me and I just roll with it. I don't get it. I don't try to question it too much. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't understand. Women just seem way better. Yeah. It, uh, well, could at least I have a very it. receptive audience for this, uh, yeah, for this you position. Just, you just don't <laughs> get it. <laughs> um, so my own experience, um, in terms of like coming to a self image of like, okay, I'm gay, uh, was a process. I don't know how many people share this, but probably at least a decent amount is in terms of first noticing attraction towards men thinking pretty much like, okay, this is just, this is probably just a phase. Like I'm probably going to grow out of this. So I see nothing wrong with just, um, indulging in it for a while, but I don't see any reason to make this a part of my identity. And then just gradually going from that to like, okay, this might actually be something that's uh, more fixed about me. It's not that I just haven't uh, started being attracted to women yet. It's I'm probably not going to be attracted to women. And even then, even after that, it was a bit of like a leap from, uh, okay, this is the state of whom I'm attracted to, to like, okay, I guess that makes me gay. Like, I'd say my husband, uh, if there's an opportunity for self-identity that's like fill in the blank as opposed to select from a field, uh, he just writes, I like guys rather than gay, uh, just as a result of that. I mean, even that's even more fine-grained as to what differences you feel about that. But I think that there is like a certain process of steps that not everybody goes through in the same order and not everybody goes through all of them, but that the end point of that is sort of coming to the realization that like, okay, I'm attracted to men. Um, I'm not necessarily going to be ashamed of that, even if it's something that I'm not necessarily going to share with uh, everybody that asks. Uh, you posted a, an, a link to a video. You want to say anything about that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was, I was trying to think of a way to bring that up in terms of uh, you mentioned in terms of as to why gay men were stigmatized. I was going to link to the old like documentary video called boys beware. It was like the, the homosexual will be a corrupting influence on the minds of our youth. I don't know. It's possible that that was the yesteryear's equivalent to the social contagion thing. But the idea you would see a lot of people spread this, um, straight into like the mid 2000s or early 2010s. The idea that the way that people become gay is that they're recruited by older men, which I really can't comment as to whether that's ever necessarily happened or to what degree of frequency that it did. But it's, it's a pernicious stereotype essentially that everybody who's gay is gay as a result of some kind of early corrupting influence. I mean, it's similar. It's similar to when you're talking about marijuana as a gateway drug. It's kind of hard to falsify because pretty much everyone tries marijuana as a first step because it's easy and mild. I mean, uh, I it's mean, used as yeah, evidence. it's corrupting influence isn't hard to falsify. Like, 
there yeah. are I'm many, saying like many of us. Of, uh, when, what is it? Uh, I forgot who said this, but if you're young and gay, it's difficult to find other young gay men when, when you're in that age bracket because people are still working out their feelings. So if you're going to have sex, it's most likely going to be with an older man, right? Less so nowadays, I feel like. Right. It's easier now, but, um, you know, think back to before the internet and before apps. I don't know. I mean, things have changed quite dramatically in that regard, even since I've been in high school. But I think the big thing, like back when I was in high school, was that uh, if if you came to that realization about yourself, it's not something that you're going to share with classmates. Like there were two other guys that I came to learn uh, were gay in high school, just out of them having like privately to peer groups come out of the closet. Uh, but for like the longest part of my adolescence, it was just something that was to be kept to myself. Uh, something that you weren't supposed to talk about or let on, but mm -hmm. definitely a big sea change like in the years since has been that that doesn't really seem to noticeably exist anymore. It's another point that's touched on in the Dan Savage Ezra Klein interview is that um, straight doesn't really exist as an aspirational identity. It, there's not the idea that if you are gay, you should do what you can to keep up the appearance of being straight anymore. I mean, I, I, I think this all comes back to the idea of there being different kinds of being gay. You know, without getting into the mechanics of it, uh, some people find anal sex pleasurable. And if and I've known guys like this. If you were 25, the first time you got convinced to have gay sex, and up until that point, you had happy relationships with women, and then suddenly now you're gay, like, were you born gay? Were you always gay? I'm, I'm not convinced. And I think that somebody who thinks of themselves as being queer... You're not convinced of what, exactly? Go again? You're not... You said... You, you asked two I, questions I, and then you said, I'm not convinced. So I wasn't sure which I, one you were. I'm not convinced that somebody who, say, becomes gay at 25 when they were perfectly happy being straight before, and I've known people like this, I'm not convinced that they were born gay, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that born gay is the explanation. Okay. And when you talk about some people who are queer, where being gay isn't just about having sex with other men, but it's about altering your outfit, your wardrobe, the way you present yourself. It's tied in with all these other things. I just think that there's many different kinds of being gay. And so in, in any conversation about gayness, you kind of end up with these disappointing conclusions because there's different points of views and different perspectives. And nobody's even really starting from the same perspective on a lot of these issues. And I think that this is a big barrier to a lot of intimacy in the gay community. I think this explains a lot of the try before you buy mentality because not all of it, right? There's other reasons we talked about, but I think that in general, uh, gay people all tend to be different from each other. There's different breeds, different species almost of being gay. And since they're all a little bit different, it superficially is easy to relate to each other, but at a deeper, more fundamental level, it becomes much harder. Yeah. Anyone else? I guess just to build on what I said, I don't really believe that anybody's born anything. I don't think that sexuality is something that you have when you're born. I think it's something you develop, essentially. Like, nobody's really 
experiences attraction as such until they hit puberty in general. Yeah. And, and just like bouncing off of Shake's point, um, I think it's a little unfortunate that so much of sexual identity gets flattened into uh, a cardboard cutout stereotype. It does feel overly stifling and I can, I can appreciate Shake's position on that. And I'm not really sure how else, how else it could have happened when uh, you're kind of like in a nascent position of seeking a broader societal acceptance. You kind of have to proffer, like you have to work with whatever you have. And that might include just simplifying things uh, for the sake of convenience. Yeah, it's a convenient slogan. The details yeah. may be a bit uh, different. Like a lot of, like one of the underlying assumptions is born, of Born This Way is like, you can't just uh, inflict a process to make somebody turn out differently than they would as like the mm-hmm. assumptions that underlie like so-called conversion therapy. Yeah. Has anyone ever tried conversion therapy? No, no, never saw the appeal. Why would I, why would I want to mess with a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, regardless of what you guys said about born this way, I still think it's a great lady Gaga song. Oh, that's definitely true. All right. Are we done? I think we're done.